Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, it, it saddens me for one reason to say that I'm uh, not doing a, a live show for you today, a live live show for you today, because this week saw the most refreshing, life-affirming news event, aside from the oncoming advent of spring itself. The birds are in the air already here in Southern California, whence this program is originating today. But, uh, no, aside from that, the most life-affirming, revivifying news event of the week, the unmasking and announcing of a scandal, a a widespread, long-term conspiracy-laced scandal that has nothing to do with the Trump administration. I wish I was here. I mean, I'm here, but I wish I were doing a, a live show so I could just bask in all of that, but I can't, and I won't. This is a program that's been recorded and features, I think, some fascinating conversation with a person who knows probably way too much about what's going on with our environment. So uh, sit back, don't relax, and enjoy this edition of Hello, Welcome to the Show.
listeners for a long time, uh, or, or long-time listeners, as I call them, are aware that uh, from time to time we take uh, long looks at uh, the state of the environment, particularly in uh, New Orleans and South Louisiana, whence this program originates, uh, went into great detail over the uh, the putative causes of the 2005 flood and uh, had some follow-up stuff. Uh, and now we have the opportunity to follow up some more on both that subject and the general state of the environment in perhaps America's most uh, environmentally challenged state. Uh, and my guest today is perfectly suited to discuss that. He's been an environmental reporter for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, for The Lens, which is a nonprofit newsroom here in New Orleans. Basically, every English-language publication that has anything to, any interest in the environment has called on the services of my guest today, Bob Marshall. Welcome, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, y- you made some news, uh, although I thought it got much less attention than it deserved, with some reporting you did a couple of years ago when you were still writing for the New Orleans Advocate. And you, I think, were the first person to report, or the first person I saw to report, that the new, improved $14 billion system the Corps of Engineers was building to protect New Orleans, uh, to uh, enhance New Orleans uh, risk reduction <laughs> from hurricanes. They don't use the word protection anymore. I guess their lawyers have advised them not to, was built to a lower standard than the original system, which catastrophically failed. Um, why were you the only person to, to report that? Well, I guess I was the only one um, at the time at a meeting um, uh, to to put the story out. Um, and I asked questions of these uh, expert engineers on the uh, Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority, East, and some of the people um, with the state as well, uh, you know, inclu- including now Congressman Garrett Graves, who at that time was head of the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority. Also, I had done a lot of investigative reporting uh, in the wake of Katrina mm-hmm. and and came across uh, myself and colleagues uh, – John McQuaid, Mark Schlefstein, and I had done a really deep dig on the whole history of the original New Orleans and vicinity hurricane protection system, as it was called mm-hmm. in 1963, mm-hmm. 65, rather. And so, you know, as a reporter, you try to find out exactly what they're giving you. And and there was a lot of talk uh, from engineers who were overseeing the Corps' new project of of just what we were getting and so I had covered this from the beginning, uh, after Katrina, doing the investigations on why the system failed, um, all the mistakes uh, the Corps made, and some of the lies, many of the lies they told, and um, which they later admitted, by the way. This is not shocking news. shouldn't be. But um, uh, And so I kept on that story, um, and then uh, um, it, it really goes back to the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. The city was um, desperately trying to reopen, yeah. you know. Uh, On its knees. A company's moving. No one's living here. So how do you get reopened? Well, you've got to have insurance, first of all. After you pump the city out to get people to come back in and stay after this uh, federal levy disaster, um, you have to have insurance. And how do you get insurance from the National Flood Insurance Program? Well, then you've got to have it certified at a certain level of risk, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the city administration at that time said, look, uh, this thing, as we now know, was not built uh, 
was never finished, um, uh, was not raised to the level uh, you said it was raised to. It was built out of garbage in many places mm-hmm. and it breeds in 60 different places. Um, we need it rebuilt. They said, fine. W came down here, stood in Jackson Square with great lighting behind him and swore to make the city whole and do a better job. The law that created the first system said that it should be built to withstand the most severe uh, meteorological event that could happen. Mm-hmm. That was a Category 5 hurricane. It was never built. It, it didn't withstand Category 3. Um, and so they said they would replace it. And so the state said, okay, that, that means obviously, according to the law, Category 5. Um, at the same time, there was, a war, uh, there was this war dragging on, right, in, uh, in Iraq. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that. Yep, and other places. And the Bush administration came back and said, we'll give you Category 3, we'll do 5 later. Look, you got to get open in a hurry, and 3 will be easier and faster to do. And, you know, what's the state, the city going to say at that point? You know, mm-hmm. no. Um, and so, look, just hurry up and build this. So so we began, as a reporter, began looking at what is Category 3. In the meantime, all these things change. As you mentioned, it's risk reduction. It's not uh, necessarily protection. Uh, uh, it can't stop a hurricane from from coming in or flooding, uh, overtopping levees, that kind of stuff. And so um, Category 3 basically is the lower standard of protection mm-hmm. than what the first system was supposed to protect us uh, from. So it is at a lower level. Uh, and I'll never forget um, uh, interviewing one of these great engineers um, on the uh, Flood Protection Authority at one of the meetings, which wasn't well attended. And he was asked the question, you know, how safe are we? And he said, well, we're much safer than we were before, obviously. Uh, I'm paraphrasing him here. But he did say this. You know, my daughter and son are thinking of buying a house here. And this fellow's from uh, another state. Mm-hmm. And so I had to cons- tell them, look, if if you have a 30-year mortgage, the odds are this system will be overtopped at least once before you finish paying off that house. So um, that's the st- statistical result of a one in 100 year event. Yeah, the, the whole 100 year event thing is not what the original legislation, the law called for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does it call for? Probably um, a one in 300 to one in 400 year event. Um, and the Dutch pre- uh, build to a one in 10,000 year event. In some places, 50,000 years. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's a different perspective. Uh, you know, how do you approach these problems? Uh, what type of protection? And it's not just here. You know, uh, there have been stories since then. Um, after Katrina, which was a real eye-opener, um, you know, most of the levees and many of the dams in this country, most of the levees um, are not built uh, to the so-called uh, 100-year flood, mm-hmm. which is um, most of the levees and river systems. So our whole infrastructure and flood protection uh, is in bad shape. And in fact, the National Flood Insurance Plan, uh, everything that's based on that, the risk factors are, are just so out of date that they need to be um, recalculated, recalibrated. I mean, we've had, with global warming, uh, the hoax that is happening, <laughs> uh, we've had in Louisiana alone, we've had, the th- uh, I think, a 1,000-year rainfall, two 500-year rainfalls in just the last four years. Now, let me just also say to your listeners out there, um, that the system we have in place now is 
far superior to anything that was built before. Well, and 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 to just depend to that, the one that was built before um, failed catastrophically in more than, as you say, in more than 60 locations. So that's not a high bar. <laughs> no, but I, let me put it another way. This is a good system. Um, the other system was no one was really watching it. The core in its in its um, IPET, this big review they did, mm-hmm. cost ten million dollars, and and the key word was um, this was a system in name only. Mm-hmm. And every engineer said, "Yes, that's the way to tell it." So what does that say to the average person? It means that uh, if you were building a, a a chain to connect you to your child and, and holding them in a flood water then the links weren't all connected, basically. <laughs> and so it wasn't going to work. And I have to say, um, part of the problem was, um, you know, we had never had uh, this catastrophic type of event, uh, this the, the type of storm that came in and pushed the waves across the lake in this way. Um, and by the way, the listeners should know, you know, everyone, I'll never forget after Katrina, when congressional delegations came down, and uh, right here in Lakeview, this area of town that we're in right now, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't a, a very old area, but um, and there was a guy who was Speaker of the House, a guy named Denny Haster. Yes, uh, he's in jail now for doing bad things with boys. But Rest, uh, wrestling coach. <laughs> yes, uh, too much wrestling, not enough right. coaching. Am I pinned yet, coach? <laughs> uh, the uh, anyway, he 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 was told at that point. Oh, where you're standing, uh, yeah, Congressman, is is um, you know below sea level. What? And and someone said, you know, yeah, a lot of the city's under sea level. And he said famously, well, you'd have to be stupid to live here. Mm-hmm. And um, wait a minute, most of the city is not under sea level. Right. It wasn't then. Uh, I mean, the majority might be now for other reasons. But this new system um, was built to higher standards after Katrina. The core redid their whole design book. That's why levees are so much more expensive now, uh, because they're designed to protect people instead of cattle, which is the standard the old system was designed on. And um, uh, that's why it cost $14.5 billion. Um, And it was being watched by everyone. Outside engineers were watching it, and just as importantly, the media was watching it. The old system was being built without, until really 2003 without any real media inspection of it. We weren't doing our job. Um, and um, and so, um, you know, this this system is built um, very solid. Um, it's being armored, which is important on the protected side, the city side of these levees. And most of the experts say that there is really just a slim chance uh, in a similar um, if it's overtopped by, um, you know, a category, a 100-year or 200-year storm surge, that uh, that it's unlikely any of them will breach and collapse. If it's only overtopped, um, that's not a big issue. The city has these enormous pumps and drainage systems. For example, uh, Hindcast after Katrina showed that if the the, the levees had collapsed along the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet in New Orleans East hadn't collapsed, the water in St. Bernard Parish in New Orleans East would have been maybe shin deep instead of 12 feet deep. So, you know, a levee's overtopped only for a few hours. Mm -hmm. And you can pump that stuff Mm -hmm. out. The problem is, I understand it from uh, a friend of mine who's a whistleblower in the Corps who looked at 
the uh, internal emails of the Corps after, was it Ike in 2012, mm -hmm. where you mentioned journalists. Journalists from CBS and the New York Times were embedded at one of the pumping stations and dutifully wrote down when the Corps said, see, the system works. She says the, the danger now is from a hurricane which carries severe rainfall into the city. Well, New Orleans flooding in the past, that's another thing that these most people don't realize. Um, our, our highest risk from flooding in the past and always going into the future is rainfall. Um, that's where our, most of our um, da flood damage comes from outside of Katrina. The only other time we were flooded by a hurricane was Betsy. For a similar reason, there were breaches on the Industrial Canal, the uh, we call the Intercity Navigation Canal, which we call the Industrial Canal down in the Ninth Ward. So uh, rain is always a problem here. And, of course, um, what happened with Houston a couple of years ago mm -hmm. with the hurricane there, the worst-case scenario always is a slow-moving storm. It just sits there and drops rain. And in that case, it stalled. Yeah. But her point was that... We have this great system with these great pumps that pump rainwater into these canals. And when there's a hurricane, the gates between the canals and the lake close. Right. Well, And therefore, the rainwater cannot be dumped into the lake, as is the normal practice. And the Corps never fixed the walls of those canals. And we got, if it had rained for two more hours during Ike, the city would have flooded again. Um. You know, I'm not aware of that. I totally look into it. As I understand it, the new pumps they're building um, and installing, that they have temporary pumps out there yes. rather than being replaced, will have enough uh, force uh, to pump out even against, um, you know, higher uh, lake levels. Um, so I, I don't think that's as big a concern. Uh, but I'll certainly follow well, that up. When, when the new pumps are completed. Yeah, they're being built now. Yeah. But the problem is keeping them working as well. Yeah. The, you know, the city has obviously a lot of risks. And, um, you know, it, it it's it's not a place to live if, well. For the fate of art. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I mean, there's a lot of risk in San Francisco, yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah. There's risk. You know, there are different types of risk. God, you know, California, you know, earthquake, fire, drought. Yeah. A mudslide. Tornado alley in the center of yeah, the country. Yeah, you know, um, and that was another thing that upset us is people, you know, you should just move the city. Yeah. Oh, okay, you know, why don't we, you know, and, and why don't we move people from Kansas? Yeah. <laughs> At least we have warnings here. Let me let me switch gears now and, and, and go to a, a, a bigger picture, which is South Louisiana. Uh, New Orleans sits sort of atop a rapidly disappearing landmass uh, that has had uh, forests, cypress forests and other uh, swamp-grown uh, um, protections for us from storm surge and from hurricane mm -hmm. winds. And it's going, is, is, is land loss still a football field an hour? <laughs> I hate that analogy. Um, <laughs> it's now you don't, what, you, what do you have against football? Uh, well, well, since... Uh, the obvious, yeah. Since the Rams game, yeah. uh, everything. Yeah. Um, so um, it's now a football field every 100 minutes. Um, mm. it, so things are improving. It, it, it's now 16 square miles a year um, that we're losing in our bottom third, our coastal zone. That's just that's not just marsh and wooded wetlands, swamps. It's also some of the high 
the higher ground, the natural levees on all the distributaries, the ridges we have down here. And we've lost barrier islands too, right? Yeah, we've lost 2,000 square miles of our coastal zone in 80 years. Um, the football field every 100 minutes, I hate that's an analogy the state uses a lot. is very dramatic, but I caution people, I can't take you out somewhere in the marsh, sit you down, and have you watch a football field disappear. Uh, that's a cumulative effort of uh, uh, number for every grass uh, that that is... Um, every blade of grass. That, that turns to open water from yeah. Texas to Mississippi over like 80 years. Mm. Some years it's worse, some years it's not as bad. So, um, so that's still, yeah, it's still a big, big problem. Um, most of southeast Louisiana, when you look at a satellite shot of southeast Louisiana, New Orleans all the way over to the Atchafalaya Basin, almost north to Baton Rouge, um, it looks like a big solid landmass, mm -hmm. right? Um, over 2 million people live there. Uh, but if you take off, if you use a satellite infrared image where different land covers have different colors, and you take off what's wet now, what's left really is two little fingers of land mm. all on the Mississippi River and Bayou Lafourche sticking out in the Gulf of Mexico. And that's why those wetlands are important. Those are our linear levees, and they're the, the, the basically they're the, the, the engine that drives fisheries production, not just for Louisiana, but for most of the Gulf South. So, um, yeah, we're still losing it. Um, and it's about the, it, it, the city, the state rather, is in a do or die race for survival for the lower third of the state um, against subsidence. This whole, this, these are all deltas of the river. They're sinking because the deltas were cut off from their supply of sediment from the rivers with levees. And then what was left there was eviscerated by about 15,000 miles of canals for oil, gas, shipping, and pipelines for the oil and gas industry primarily. And uh, the plumbing was destroyed. The natural plumbing. The natural plumbing. Um, a delta can maintain its elevation against a sea, a natural delta, coastal delta, three main ways. The first way, obviously, the most important are annual floods that spread this sediment out, adding another layer on top of the delta. Second way is the base, the plant base of all the plants in this delta. When Bienville founded New Orleans 300 years ago, um, the estuary of the Mississippi River was 6,000 square miles. This was the Amazon of North America. Mm. It was still growing into the shallow Gulf of Mexico, even into the early 1900s. Once the levees were Good levees were finally finished after the Great Flood of 27, 1927. You remember that one, Harry? Yeah, I go um, way back. Yeah. But you were talking now about Mississippi River levees. Yeah, but also levees. That, that levee cut off all the distributaries, all the side channels down here that also fed mm -hmm. uh, and built this delta, this massive delta. And, um, and so that's sinking. And according to NOAA, uh, this is the fastest sinking large coastal landscape in the world. Mm. And, um, I mean, all the world's deltas are in trouble, but yeah. this one's sinking even faster because it's a fairly young delta. Um, and at the mouth of the river, 70 miles south of New Orleans, it's sinking at about four to five feet a century. There are areas in southeast, not far from New Orleans, outside these levees. You know, the average elevation here is about two and a half feet. 
Um, and some areas are sinking at about an inch every 30 months. Mm-hmm. That's 18 inches in 50 years, three feet in a century. So then you add sea level rise. Yeah. And um, uh, that's why NOAA has said this area will probably see the highest amount of sea level rise of any place in North America before the end of the century because you, when you add what's happening on the land, the, the subsidence or subsidence to what's happening in the sea with sea level rise, it's called relative sea level rise. Mm-hmm. What's happening on land relative to the sea, that gets us to about five to five and a half feet. Before the end of the century, two things have to be done. We have to reduce emissions, which is driving sea level rise, and we have to start pumping, reconnecting the river some kind of way with its load of sediment back to these sinking deltas. So there, are, the state has a plan uh, to sort of simulate nature, uh, create these two big diversions of <clears throat> Mississippi River water and hopefully the sediment within uh, to start pumping it out to the surrounding landscape and hopefully revivify the delta creation process. And it's fraught for two reasons that I understand. One is uh, fishermen and oystermen are saying, no, don't divert the water, dredge instead. And two, the state is, has no idea where to get the money for this $50 billion to $100 billion plan. And one of the ways that was envisioned to be a source of that money was this notorious lawsuit filed by the uh, the levy board against 93 petroleum and petroleum and oil services companies. That suit died when Bobby Jindal was still governor of New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, he he actually got a bill passed uh, to kill the lawsuit retroactively. Really, what happened to it? It was killed in in the um, federal court. Um, basically, the federal courts ruled that the levy board didn't have standing. Um, it, it wasn't killed on the merits of their case. Uh-huh. It was killed on a, a you know judicial oh, technicalities, yeah. which are important. So, so that one's gone. What, um, about, what about the <clears throat> pardon me, the local parishes in some areas? They, they they have standing, and so that's going forward. And the oil and gas companies uh, are fighting them as well, trying to get their those cases moved to federal court where they think they have uh, a better chance, especially in the fifth district court of appeals here, the U.S. Justice Department. The federal system, uh, it's fairly conservative. So this 50, I'll tell your uh, listeners if they don't know, we have this 50-year plan inaugurated in 2007 after Katrina uh, announced at $50 billion in 2010 dollars. When you do average inflation like Tulane has done, it comes to $92 billion mm-hmm. by 2067. Um, half that money goes to structural defenses for our coastal communities, flood walls, levees, maybe raising houses, that type of thing. Um, and the other half is devoted to trying to uh, rebuild some of the wetlands that have now open water and try to hold on to some of what we have left. Uh, they'll do that two main ways, um, what we call pump and dump. Um, it's called marsh creation uh, in, in the plan, basically mining sediment from the rivers and pumping it into these uh, wetlands that have become open water nearby and then also mining it from offshore, um, as far as 20 miles offshore from previous miles of the river, and pumping that into the beaches to rebuild these beaches. And we've actually been doing that. Um, the problem with pump and dump is, for example, uh, three initial projects in a parish south of New Orleans, they can build 700 acres, two and a half feet above sea level in, I don't know, eight to nine months, for about $30 million. <laughs> 
And what happens in 20 years, it's got to be done again because mm-hmm. it's going to sink again and open up. Um, <clears throat> now, it's become much more efficient, so it may not cost that much. But that's the whole problem with pump and dump. Um, the other way they would do this is what's called controlled river sediment diversions. Um, no one's ever built one of these anywhere in the world. Simple explanation is floodgate. you'd put floodgates in the levee at key spots. Most of this is south of New Orleans. And when the river's up carrying all that mud and fresh water, you'd open those gates, let it go out, and rebuild like, you know, mimic what the river did uh, initially. These things will be very expensive. The, the, the only one we have that's moving close to maybe boots on the ground, as you say, shovels, uh, and construction will cost about $1.3 billion. But once it's built, it can build land as long as the river is flowing, right? The river does the pumping work. The river carries all the mud. You don't have to put this initial investment mm-hmm. back in there. So you mentioned who's against it. Uh, some oystermen and shrimpers and some sports fishermen, sport fishing guides, don't want to see this happen because if you re- this is called restoration because we're restoring the area to what it was like before we screwed it up, right? And uh, these fishermen have been making a really nice living um, as the system has degraded um, because the most productive era for a coastal delta as far as total fishery production is, is when it's been abandoned by its river and it's crumbling and opening up and becoming brackish. Mm. It has more uh, edge, more um, shoreline, and as the uh, marsh erodes, it's priming that pump for the food chain that drives shrimp production, the perfect mixture for oysters, fin fish, well, speckled trout, Red drum, redfish, flounder, all these other things. You make me hungry. Yeah, I know. I'm ready to go right now. So so, um, so they've been, you know, basically feeding off this corpse that's dying. Mm-hmm. This, but it's a natural thing, you know, and they've, and they've been having great luck. I shouldn't say luck. They've been having great success. Oyster fishermen are some of the wealthiest people in the state. Now, if you turn it back to the way it was when our grandfathers and great-grandfathers showed up here, you'll change the salinity from – Brackish to salt, which is what it's become, to fresh, mm-hmm. which means a lot of the shrimp will be further out. The oysters can't grow in that fresh water. Mm-hmm. You have to relocate those guys. And uh, the, the, the area where you're catching spotted sea trout, speckled trout, and red drum, you'll cast, catch largemouth bass and crappie, which we call sockeye. So so that'll change, and that'll, re, that'll relocate their target species, now have to go a lot farther or just go out of business. So they don't want to see this happen. If it doesn't happen, they want to see just dredge and pump and don't change the salinity. Mm -hmm. There's no way you can afford that. Mm -hmm. You just don't have the money, and it's not as efficient. Um, Oh, you can do it faster. You're going to run out of sediment. Mm -hmm. You can't – the river isn't – you can't just go dig anywhere in the river because you have to – make sure the ship's coming up. This is a busiest port in the nation by tonnage. So um, so they're fighting it. The state was pretty heavy-handed originally saying, look, you know, here's the problem. Once the marsh is gone and the water becomes too saline, a hypersalinity. You then, don't have any business anyway. No. Yeah. And you'll have fishing 
like they have in Texas and Florida, which is nothing compared to what we have. As I understand it, the Corps of Engineers dredges the river all the time to maintain shipping lanes, and then they take uh, under their their arcane set of regulations, they take that spoil, I guess is what they call what they dredge up, and dump it in the uh, easiest possible place, which is out in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, what they've done, uh, the Corps has three missions, as I say, <laughs> here on the river. The first is navigation. Yeah. The second is flood fighting. It was only, I think, maybe in the 70s or 80s that um, restoration was added to their portfolio. Uh, so commerce, shipping is their first job. And that's one of the reasons those levees were built as well, mm-hmm. uh, is to squeeze the river and keep it going faster so it doesn't silt in as much. And it's always silting up. So they have these dredge boats, and they dredge that sandbar up. And it is heavy mineral-based sand and, and mud pump it back into the river's water column and let the current take it offshore. Mm. So the state, once it got involved in restoration, especially down there at the mouth of the river, they said, hey, how about just pumping that stuff over the side there and the sinking basin? And they said, we're not authorized. Um, the way this things work is co- the Corps can't do anything unless Congress tells it to do something, authorizes it to do it. Now, there's been a big debate. What do you – you guys – you can look at that and say, but they wouldn't do it because they wanted the extra money from Congress to to pump it over the side. Two years ago, we finally got that done. The last, uh, this big Water Resources Development Act bill included $10 million for the Corps to do what we call beneficial dredge. So now they're doing that. Huh. And the shipping industry is behind that as well. So that's where we are now. When this coastal master plan, as we call it, was first introduced in 2007, and by the way, it's gotten basically rave reviews from all over the world. In fact, it's fair to say this is the most advanced climate science-based climate adaptation plan in the nation and one of the most advanced in the world. It was developed not just with Louisiana's – they have a lot of great coastal scientists and engineers here, but from help from around the world. When it was first announced in 2007, the computer said, if you get all the money, build these projects on time, and they work according to what we think they'll work, by 2067, we'll be building more land in aggregate than we're losing. Mm. So that was – you know, I was – that was a lifeline. That was, you know, this we, we, we have a chance. Now, the plan is, is adaptive management. It has to be because everything's changing here, right? A lot of the big variables, obviously, subsidence and sea level rise. So every five years it's updated um, from everything they've learned. And it, they're creating science and engineering on the fly. As I said, this has never been done anywhere. So the, the state agency puts all the stuff they've learned back together, comes up with a a new iteration of the plan five years later, puts off a public review and then takes it back to the state legislature for approval. And the smartest thing this state has ever done politically, which don't say it, I know it's a low, low bar, (laughs) the lawmakers can't amend it. They can only (laughs) vote it up or down. Yeah, that is pretty smart. And they've they've approved it unanimously each of the three times. So uh, in the 2012 plan, same thing. They said, hey, you know, 
have made progress. You know, they are making progress, and mm-hmm. they're doing different stuff. And they said, look, same thing, you know, if we get all the money, build the projects on time. Why is that important? Because in the simplest terms, the holes we have to fill keep getting deeper and wider by the day. We've got finite amount of mud to put in those holes, right? So if we delay building these projects, then we have to uh, scale back what we can fill, and then some of the projects will just have to come off the board mm-hmm. because you know we don't have the mud. So in 2012, plans, hey, hey, we can do all this again. We can still, by 2067, we can turn that equation around. And then the 2017 plan came out. And they said, um, we can't, can't make that promise anymore. Mm. Even if we get all the money, which is highly unlikely, even if all the projects are built on time, Ditto. best case scenario, we're going to still lose another 1,200 square miles by 2067. Worst case scenario, we'll lose 2,800 square miles by 2067, even if we get all the money. So what's changed in 15 years? Not the sediment supply. Subsidence really hasn't changed that much. Mm -hmm. The money is still an issue. Mm -hmm. What's changed, and, and the plan says it, of the sea level rise. Mm. The projections, the worst case projections for sea level rise in the 2012 plan are the best case projections for sea level rise in the 2017 plan. So now they're saying everything, the best case scenario um, in the 2017 plan is built around not just getting all the money, but the Paris Climate Accord's working. Mm-hmm. The worst case scenario is if they're not working. So it's all tied now to emissions. This is not, therefore, any longer a Louisiana problem. Well, no, we can't solve it without help from the world, yeah. basically. Yeah. And, you know, the irony here is that uh, this is a red state. Uh, most The legislature is obviously mostly Republican. They endorse that unanimously. Mm. The state's official position is the future of its bottom third, which, by the way, isn't just home to a bunch of crazy cages who like to hunt fish and get drunk on Mardi Gras. Um, but it's the energy center for much – it's half the nation's refining capacity is here, 20 percent of its natural gas supply, 90 percent of its offshore gas supply. Anyway. That is, that is in itself a, a bizarrely uh, paradoxical argument, of course, because – to get to where we have to be per the Paris Climate Accords, we have to shut down a huge chunk of that industry. Petro states um, are not supportive of the clean power plan. Um, I was going to say that even though this is our state's official position is that reducing carbon emissions is the only way we can realistically hope to save much of the bottom third of the state by 2067. We're not talking at the end of the century. Mm-hmm. We're talking 40 years. Yeah. Um, but our congressional delegation, which is GOP except for the one Democrat from New Orleans, have been opposed to any carbon regulations. In fact, Steve Scalise, who was the majority whip mm-hmm. um, when the GOP still had the House, last year, I mean, his district, which includes where we're sitting, mm-hmm. I think, um, southeast Louisiana, which has lost more land to crumbling subsidence and is is – Noah says is ground zero for the worst case of sea level rise caused by 
emissions, he authored um, a bill, a resolution rather, uh, in the House last year, co-sponsored by a rep from West Virginia, no surprise, that the House would oppose any carbon tax in the future. The people he's representing, their grandchildren likely won't be able to live here. And he's against what the state's saying is the only strategy for having a future here. Which which suggests to uh, a starry-eyed idealist like myself that if I were, let's say, the governor of the great state of Louisiana, I would be busting my hiney to uh, build a new renewable energy research and development facility in this state so that it's no longer dependent on one source of energy for both its energy and its revenue. You know, you would think that um, if you represented the state, the biggest challenge you face here and really threat is what's happening to the bottom third of the state, which is basically the economic engine that drives the rest of the state Mm -hmm. and much of the country. And by the way, this is you know, an economic problem. This is an, it is an, uh, considered by many people one of the greatest ongoing environmental disasters in the nation, but it's also this terrible economic crisis rushing towards the rest of the country because no one knows how they're going to help this energy infrastructure survive, what's going to happen, according to all the scientists uh, in the world, in, well, 97% of them in. <laughs> Those in Louisiana. Wouldn't that in itself be an argument for accelerating in this state uh, renewable energy development and research? Yeah. I mean, petro states like um, – well, Louisiana is in the worst case. Texas, most of its oil and gas production is is um, up in the Permian Basin. Um, you know, we, we put uh, – Louisiana pioneered the offshore oil and gas industry back in the 40s. We put 4,500 rigs off our coast. We also drilled 50,000 oil and gas wells in our coastal zone. So that's where the damage has been has been done by oil and gas. So, you know, I, I've I've written columns and, and and reported what I call voting to drown. The people in this state um, <clears throat> continue to reelect politicians who don't want to pursue the strategy that will help them survive in on this landscape, help this landscape survive down here in the south of Louisiana. Mm. Um, you know, great book on, you know, uh, you probably talked about it on your show, Strangers in Their Own Land. Uh, wonderful book came out about two or three years ago, New York Times bestseller by, uh, I wish I could remember the lady's name. She's a sociologist at Berkeley. She's written a couple of other books. And um, she had just finished a book and she was having dinner, as the story goes, as she says in the book, with her um, son and daughter-in-law. He said, well, what are you going to do next? He said, well, you know, I want to go into deepest red America and ask and try to find out why people vote against their own self-interest. And a daughter-in-law says, well, mom, you ought to come to my hometown, Lake Charles, Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, why? Well, you know, it's nothing but all refineries and chemical fa- refineries and, you know, it's suffered tremendous pollution and, and they keep voting, you know, for these people who are against any type of regulation. And so she goes down there and um, the Cajun country. Mm-hmm. And, of course, 
she doesn't do a, a, a drive-by shooting. She goes in and she spends like four years. Mm. And she falls in love with these people. I know some of them in the book. I'm sure you've met them. And, you know, they're great folks. And, and it's like a therapy session. She's not looking down her nose at them. Mm-hmm. She, she, she's, how does this make you feel? And, and why do you feel that way? Mm-hmm. And how does this make you feel? And you get to know these folks like she does. And, you know, my wife couldn't finish the book. She was so upset. Um, I couldn't put it down because, um, you know, it, it's, you know, people ask me when I'm speaking about this issue and here in different parts of the country, you know, why are they doing that? Why are they voting this way? Well, I'll let people read the book. Mm-hmm. It's really a wonderful book. It's it's on this. It's it's centered here in southwest Louisiana, heart of oil and gas country. Uh, but it applies, you know, to a lot of places. Maybe a follow up on, you know, what's the matter with Kansas uh, that came out what, yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. So so you've got this this paradox, this this suicide wish, if you will. And I've gone out and done stories and interviewed people down on the bayou, you know, took the Cajun villages, which people think still exist. And and two things I've learned uh, over the last few years, uh, really kind of digging into these stories. I was down in Cocodry in Terrebonne Parish. And on this road, uh, you, you go past places like Chauvin and uh, Homa and on Bayou Sale and, and Bayou... Cocodri and all these bayous that are famous. And, you know, there are no Cajun fishing villages anymore. Um, most of the fishermen went to work in the oil business and have become very wealthy, driving boats offshore and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of these little towns are already pretty much deserted because they keep flooding. People have moved up, up the bayou, uptown, as they say sometimes. And I was talking to three people for this documentary I was helping these f- folks on. And, um, you know, I said, um, how do you feel about the oil industry? Oh, you know, uh, that oil industry, you know, we need it here. It's g- giving me a chance to my whole family to get out of this, uh, you know, rut. Um, and this one fellow said, you know, Bob, people come down here and and criticize the oil and gas industry. What they don't realize is they're criticizing us. This is all country. This isn't Cajun country. Mm-hmm. This is all country and has been since the 1940s and 50s. So there's a, a big fear. And, and one state rep who who was the uh, head of the, the coastal agency for a while, this whole plan, I've known him since he got out of college. He was a fisheries biologist and, and went into management. And now he's a, a state rep. And I said, why don't you tell these people what's going to happen? Why don't you, you know, lead? And, and he said, Bob, you know what? These people aren't worried about what's going to ha- might happen in 40 years. They're worried about how they're going to pay next month's mortgage. Mm-hmm. So there's this big fallacy. And I, you hear, I've been hearing this since I was first started writing about wetlands issues probably in, in, in the 80s. We don't want the oil industry to leave. And I'm like, where are they going to go? <laughs> they go where the oil is. The oil's here. Yeah. But even more importantly now, so are the pipelines. Yeah. So are the refineries. They're not going to recreate that infrastructure. Try to get a, try to get a permit for a refinery anywhere in the country. Yeah. The pipelines that carry this stuff to the rest of the country are here. You know, five of, of the seven... Built or planned 
liquid natural gas ports are here. It's all here. They mm-hmm. can't leave. So in, in, in terms of just trying to make them behave, mm-hmm. we've got them over a barrel. Before, it was just all the damage they were doing mm-hmm. and the state turning a blind eye to it um, and saying, oh, we don't want them to go away. Now we're at the point where we know that carbon emissions from fossil fuels are the major driving driver for climate change and sea level rise, and that is an existential threat to this part of the state. And to their infrastructure. So, yeah. And, and so this... I mean, instead of coming together, how do we solve this? How do we, you know, we let's let's have a long range plan of of weaning, you know, uh, not just the nation, obviously the state off of carbon jobs and and re-educating our our state to do other things. And no one's even looking at that. They're just saying we're against it. It's it's like the oyster fishermen, excuse me, and the shrimpers. We're against this because it might hurt us. We don't want to look at a different future. We're against this. I'm just thinking as you're talking about that that country that you visited, uh, that unless I'm mistaken, the name of that parish, Terrebonne, means good earth. Yes. Yes. Terrebonne Parish. Yeah. It's not much left of it now. The the critical period for the bottom part of the state will be the next 10 years um, for this coastal master plan. Two things have to happen. They have to find a permanent funding source within the next 10 years. They have a little breathing room now because of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, beginning last year, they started getting half a billion dollars a year from BP settlements of different kinds. It's got to be spent on the coast. It's tied up legally. But these these projects can't, aren't planned and designed in you know a week. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, a, a long term. They have to be uh, designed, engineered. They've got to be, you know, go through computer mockups and everything. So it's, you know, it's a long process, ten years or so. Um, so they've got to be pretty sure that they've got money to continue on. Uh, they've always said that, you know, they've got to be spending about a billion dollars a year um, building all these different projects. So if they don't have they haven't come up with a permanent funding source, say, in eight years, then by then they've got to start scaling back on the number of projects, which means they'll have a smaller coast, right, Mm -hmm. because they can do less. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, according to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, several months ago, maybe November, they said, look, the Paris Accords really aren't what they should be. The best effort looks like now it was low-balling. The world has to reduce emissions 40% in 10 years or will be locked into some of the worst and most severe impacts this century, and that includes sea level rise. So the state is looking at this kind of 10-year deadline now. You know, um, if Paris works, then great. That's the big, the big mountain to climb for, for survivability here, you know, and everything below South of New Orleans, anyway, um, uh, and all around Lake Pontchartrain as well. But th- that is sea level rise and getting those emissions down. If we're on that trajectory um, in 10 years to reduce emissions so that temperatures don't rise more than 2 degrees, then all the models indicate that 
um, sea level rise would probably be less than a meter, maybe two feet, uh, on average around the world, by the end of the century. So, um, and if that's the case, their computers right now say, well, you know, we'll only lose 1,200 square miles. Hmm. Which affects the safety of, of New Orleans in terms of those protective features that they, that they a wooded wetlands offer, right? Well, it, the, we don't have many of those wooded wetlands left, hmm. and the ones we have left are dying. Hmm. Um, um, the state took a lot of action after Katrina to buy up what was left. Um, and the problem is there, this was a river basin, um, and the swamps are in a river basin, and cypress swamps in a river basin. There's a dry period at the end of the summer and early fall, and that's when cypress seedlings can really root and grow. But once you cut off all the distributaries with those levees, this big delta began sinking slowly. And so that shortened uh, the dry period. And on top of that, when we had all these canals dredged that brought salt water into the northern part of these estuaries, uh, cypress are very intolerant to salinity. Mm. So um, part of the master plan is one diversion. It's a small one, 5,000 cubic feet per second, and it, they've actually got the money for that in their beginning design and engineering. It's a big pipe, basically, uh, from the river north of New Orleans to put fresh water back into some of these swamps to hold on to them as long as we can. If you're into you know, fighting an important battle, an environmental battle, from a scientific engineering, landscape architecture, uh, something that really matters, this is kind of the place to be. You know, we're, um, the state's doing some amazing work. Leave the politicians out of it, mm -hmm. our politics aside, but the uh, CPRA uh, is um, doing amazing stuff. Mm. Bob Marshall, um, great, detailed, deep uh, reporting and analysis of what we're uh, living through right here, right now. And uh, I, I can say from experience, although not recent experience, I'm, I'm waiting for the next dose, uh, a fine gumbo maker, too. Oh, man, you missed a good one. I heard. I heard tell. All right, man, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for talking about this.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's extra special edition of the show. A lot of talk on this one, a lot of music on the next one. Next week, same time on the radio, whenever you want it on your other audio device of choice, your smart speaker, your smart whatever. And it'd be just like not having a smart whatever if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh, a tip of the Le show chapeau to Jeffrey Talbot at AudioWorks in New Orleans for engineering today's broadcast. And careful, attentive listeners will notice that I said this program is originating from both Santa Monica and New Orleans today. The nutty thing is it's true. I don't understand it either. But I just work here. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO for help with today's show. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions that originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from deep inside your audio device of choice.